Welcome to Bible study. This is Nick Krita, your host. Very happy to have you with us today. May God bless you as we open the Bible and to look into the Bible and study together a beautiful um, topic about the resurrection of Moses. Just to remind our listeners and maybe those ones who join us for the first time that we were approaching for quite a few weeks the book of Deuteronomy and uh, under this title, Present Truth in the Book of Deuteronomy. And we dealt with quite a few interesting topics. And I'll encourage you, if you miss some of those programs, to go to our website, faithfm.com.au, or even better, download the FaithFM app, FaithFM Australia. And you can listen back to some of those programs we went through. Just to remind you a couple of them, we, we cover the topics like uh, the everlasting covenant, the love of the Lord, your God, the stranger in your gates. For what nation is there so great? Law and grace, choose life, turn their hearts. Remember, do not forget, Deuteronomy in the later writings and Deuteronomy in the New Testament. Wonderful topics. And if you miss some of them, please don't hesitate to uh, go to our website and uh, listen back. I just want to welcome our panel today. Helen, good to have you with us. Thank you, Nick. It's great to be here again. And I can't believe it's the end of another year and end of another quarter. It's just amazing. Where is time? Will, it's nice to have you with us. Thank you, uh, Nick. It's all inspiring stuff and it's good to be part of it. Joe, thank you for joining. Thank you, Nick. It's always, always um, a pleasure to be and um, here and to join everyone. Thank you. Ken, good to have you with us too. Thank you, Nick. Again, it's a pleasure to be here and be part of this panel today. Elija, thank you for joining. Yes, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be part of the Bible study discussion. Brenton, welcome from uh, down south. Thank you, Nick. I'm looking forward to the study as we wrap up the book of Deuteronomy. And Len, thank you for joining us and uh, thank you for preparing this uh, Bible study you are facilitating today. I will just hand it over to you right now. Thank you for joining. Well, thank you for your welcome, as always, and hello, listeners. We are coming to the end of the series of Bible studies on the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And what has happened in the past has provided many useful lessons for us in the 21st century. One outstanding and repeated theme in Deuteronomy is obey, trust and honour God and his blessings will follow. Disobey, on the other hand, and dishonouring God and following your own selfish inclination will not invoke God's approval and blessings, but may result in displacement, disappointment and disaster. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Pentateuch, the five books written by Moses. However, this week we are studying about Moses' death and resurrection, and obviously someone else recorded this last fascinating section of Scripture. So stay with us. Leonard is indeed a, an end to a fascinating and inspiring chapter in Bible history. And uh, I'd like to offer to pray that the Lord helps us to understand its significance. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for what has been taught through your inspired word, not only for its principles, its amazing invitations and loving counsel, but for the insights we gain into the lives of great leaders like your servant Moses, who had followed you faithfully. Today, as we review the closing scenes of his life and contemplate the privilege of him being given immediate entrance into your kingdom, we pray that we may determine to be faithful as well, especially in these challenging times. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for praying for us, Will. All right, well, now let's begin. Helen, in Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3, is a description of the of Moses. What does the Bible say about him? Thank you, Len. In um, 12 verse 3, I'm reading here from the New Living Translation. It says, now Moses was very humble, more humble than any other person on earth. Not just humble, but very humble. And some people say, well, that he was very meek uh, and they relate meekness with mildness, but he was humble. And to me, he was an example of Christ. How humble was Christ when he washed the disciples' feet? But also the fact that how do we know he was humble apart from that statement in the Bible? Well, we have been studying through Deuteronomy all this quarter. <clears throat> and back in one of the lessons, we spoke about the fact of how he, he – um, prepared to give his own life for the people of Israel's sins. And that was back in Exodus 32, I think. And it's just amazing. I've often said to people, Moses suffered from MIS, which for me was Moses inadequate syndrome. And I think a lot of us do that. But he really felt, felt it. He felt humble. He felt meek. Even to the point when God called him, he said, but, but I can't, I don't think I can do it. You know, and God gave him a mouthpiece through his brother. He was willing, but he was also very humble. Okay. Thank you, Helen. Well, some Bible versions don't use the word humble. In, in um, my Bible, it says he was the meekest man on all the earth. Now, Will, I want to ask you a question. Is meekness weakness? Oh, on the contrary, Len, the Apostle Paul actually encourages us to put on meekness like clothing. He says in Colossians 3 verse 12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. And a meekness is described as one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. So if meekness brings the Spirit into our lives, I would suggest that it comes as a result of determined submission to God. And, of course, the elimination of pride and self-seeking to be strong and effective witnesses for God. Just like Jesus, who himself said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. No, Len, I like the way Christianity today puts it. An ox at the plough is not weak but extraordinarily strong. The key, though, is that his power is harnessed and directed. Perhaps meekness is strength that is submitted to an appropriate authority, Christianity today says. I think that's really applicable. Well, 
Meekness, that's Moses for you. Uh, submitting to an appropriate authority. Yes, uh, just before you speak, Brenton, this reminds me of some counsel that Jesus gave. And he said, if somebody strikes you on one side of the face, do what? Turn Turn the the other other side. Mm. Now, that requires more strength of character than it does to get your fist clenched and hoe into him. Meekness is not weakness. Moses was a strong character. Now, Brenton. Um, I think Will has articulated it pretty well, but I read this statement too, which is similar. It said, meekness is not weakness. It is strength under control. I rather like that one. However, I'd like to take it a step further. I'm asking myself the question, is meekness a complete absence of self-ego? And is it something that does not retaliate under pressure? I believe that Moses did not retaliate except for the one occasion that we find in our study today, which we'll get to. I believe that Moses did not retaliate. If you stop and think, as Ken said off air, about the 40 years that he has led these rebellious, grumbling, mumbling people, each time something went wrong, they blamed him personally. He did not take the blame personally. He always referred them to God and said, it's not me that's leading you, it's God. I believe there's a lesson that we can learn today about meekness. Meekness today, I believe, is not taking things personally. If people have a go at you or um, try and belittle you or try and target you, I believe we should commit those things to God and leave them in his care. To my way of thinking, that's exactly what meekness is. Yes, I suppose some people would take advantage of that. Yes. But um, that's just the world we live in. Now, we're talking about Moses, Lydia. What does his name, Moses, mean? Moses means through out of water. So we remember the, the experience that happened before when he was rescued from the water, being hidden by his mother, and he was adopted by the king's uh, daughter. And um, Moses was given a name by his parents before, and uh, he was rescued uh, for a purpose. So it was God's hand in, in his life. So the parents gave his name I think being inspired by the Holy Spirit to give him a name, the name Moses, because he had a purpose in in life. Okay, well, I think we'll find that water features rather strongly in Moses' life. Yes, Nick? I was just going to add, though, what Elijah said. um, That was very amazing because names in the Bible were very significant. And... um, to name uh, that child, newborn baby Moses, and then come across all those challenges in uh, Egypt, and then the parents to very gently place him in that basket on the water, I believe they have that hope that Moses will be drawn out of water. That's why maybe they place him on the water. They could maybe hide him somewhere, somewhere else. They have many other options to do. But you see how God leads his people and to assure them 
that he's in control of all things. And with Moses, it was exactly the same. I believe that's why his sister was watching him on the waters. Because with the expectation of Moses being drawn out of the water, what an amazing name. Yes. All right. Well, of course, he's got a very amazing story, particularly in his earlier years. But anyhow, let's move on. Well, as I said before, Water featured rather strongly in Moses' life. And Joe, how did an incident involving water cause Moses to sin? And what were the consequences? That's a very good question, Len. In this incident, the children, if we look at Numbers chapter 20, it tells us um, that the children of Israel had moved again to the desert of Zin or Zin. And in this place, it's probably pertinent to mention that Miriam had died and this would have affected the mood in the entire camp. They were also in in a place where there was very little water and they began to complain. I think in verse 3 it begins with would that, this is a familiar whinge, would that we had died with our dear brothers the Lord killed they shouted at Moses you have deliberately brought us into this wilderness to get rid of us along with our flocks and herds. Why did we ever, why did you, sorry, ever make us leave Egypt and bring us here to this evil place? Where is the fertile land of wonderful crops, the figs, vines and pomegranates you have told us about? Why? There isn't even water enough to drink. Now, the mood in the camp was volatile. It was short of water in a very warm place. It was a recipe for rebellion and an, an opportunity for faith as well. Now. Moses in verse 8 was instructed to speak to the rock. You may remember that the last time this had happened, Moses was told to strike the rock for water and water had gushed out. All this has a symbolic meaning and significance, and I think we're going to come to that. But here we have Moses disobeying God and striking the rock, not once, but twice in sight of all of Israel. Water poured out of the rock as God provided for the children of Israel and their thirsty flocks. Now, God could have done any number of things at that moment. He could have been very severe, but he had provided for the needs of the people despite Moses' disobedience. And there are so many lessons here. Some of us tell us much about the character of God. I'd like to focus on verse 12, though, and this is what God says to him. But the Lord said to Moses, and Aaron, because you did not trust, and some versions say, believe in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. This is a, it's a very sad thing for him to say. Moses had spent his entire life honoring God. But in this moment, God says that you did not trust me sufficiently to honor me. And what Moses had done was that basically an unholy thing because he was God's representative to these people he had made God look like one of their pagan deities that had lost control that he was angry and temperamental he did not reflect the heart and character of God before the people and in this sense Moses had diminished God in the eyes of the people who could estimate the ripple effect, the ongoing ripple effect for those that were there that day and the stories that would be retold through generations about this occasion? Could it have undermined their faith, belief and trust as well? And that is why it appears that God had to address it decisively. 
And of course, God's correction of Moses was hard. It would appear to have been hard, but he had to be consistent. He had to be impartial because he couldn't have one set of rules or one set of acceptable behavior for Israel and other his other children and one for Moses. And so he would not lead Israel into the promised land. Now, this is something that he had dreamed about and hoped for, and it was just something another person had to complete. I think it's worthy to mention that in this quarrel and protest of this mass of people to Moses against God, that they didn't, that at that stage they didn't have water to drink, um, it was a mess. And uh, it says in, the, in Numbers chapter 20, verse 6, that Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, take the stuff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. So when Moses and Aaron went in front of that big assembly, in front of the rock, he didn't speak to the rock as God instructed him. But in verse 10, it says that Moses said to them, to the assembly, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. So he misled God's command because God asked him to speak to the rock Hmm. Instead, he hit the rock twice. Brenton? A couple of thoughts on this one. Uh, firstly, um, I believe, um, according to what uh, Patriarchs and Prophets mentions in the chapter on this, God actually withdrew uh, the water from Israel at this particular time. We're dealing with the children of those who died in the wilderness. This is the 40th year of their wandering in the wilderness. In other words, they're just about to go into the promised land. God is testing them just as he tested their fathers. Their fathers failed and they failed too because Helen brought it up earlier when she said, if you uh, have a look in Exodus 17, the wording used by the children here in Deuteronomy 20 is virtually identical to that found in Exodus chapter 17. So you've got that as one issue. Another issue you've got by actually saying, here now, ye rebels, as Lydia said, must we fetch you water from this rock? They, uh, they had said all along, as we all know from our study this quarter, that every time something went wrong, they blamed Moses. In a sense, by making this comment, they are saying to themselves, we were right all along. It's Moses who led us, not God. So therefore, God is not glorified in any of this. And I believe Moses' sin in presumptuously saying, must we fetch you water from this rock, is not dissimilar to the sin that Lucifer did in heaven. God had no option, as I see it, other than to demonstrate his displeasure on Moses and Aaron. As someone said earlier on, Miriam had died. Four months later, after Miriam died, Aaron died. 11 months after Miriam died, Moses died. 
They all died within the same 12-month period. I believe the lesson that we can learn, Len, from this is that God expects us to follow him faithfully in everything. Anytime we lose our hold in, on God, we are in deep trouble. And even though this was the only sin recorded against Moses, it was of sufficient magnitude that he was not able to go into the promised land and lead them in. No doubt. Moses was very angry and yes. frustrated when he disobeyed God's command. Yes. Because the people were complaining about there being no water. But Ken, I want to ask you a question which relates to us these days. Is being upset or angry any excuse for us to disobey? Well, Len, I would say this. Being upset is not a reason to disobey what God has said or advised you to do. However, I would add that as human beings, God understands us very well as he made us and knows how we will often react to things. I find the following scripture very interesting, and it's Ephesians 4, 26 to 27. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath, neither give place to the devil. So here we see Paul in one of his letters to the church at Ephesus, exhorting the followers to walk and behave as Christians. Again, Paul knowing we all get angry at times, but telling us not to hold on to the anger as it could cause us to sin. So to sum this question up, I would say justifiable anger should be directed towards the wrong act without animosity towards the wrongdoer. And I think to be able to do this is a great Christian achievement. Okay, well, that uh, is in line with meekness, which Moses wasn't particularly meek at this moment. <laughs> but being angry or being upset is not an excuse for us to disobey. Joe, then Nick. I know it's no excuse. However, it just makes it easier, doesn't it? When we're angry, we're no longer really in control of ourselves. Um, we are swayed by emotions and we aren't able to make good choices as easily. And I think this is where uh, Satan comes in and uses that as an opportunity to create or to provoke a situation where we would sin. Um, as we know, as we've already looked at in Moses's case, you know, he was mourning his sister. They were they were rebellious again. They were whinging, complaining, angry. And when they get angry and yell at him, they would have been very, um, well, very threatening. And so, you know, he just had a lapse, didn't he? He just lost it and had a lapse and um, forgot to give God the glory and disobey God at the same time. And so I think it's no excuse, but it certainly opens the way for making it easier for us to make poor choices. In fact, sometimes we just act on instinct. We don't even really think about what we're doing or saying at the time. Yes. Yes, Nick. I just wanted to add here that uh, Moses was like any one of us, a human being, a sinful man, even though God spoke about him in great regard. But Moses have his laws also. What's important, uh, that passage of the Bible is quoted that not to let the sun go, go down on your anger. 
sort out things when you see, because God is the one who provides. God is the one who promised us that he will help us even uh, down through the valleys, you know. Uh, he will be with us when we are going very well. I think this is a lesson because I want to remind us all again, because we are talking about this experience of Moses and many other people in the Bible in the light of the present truth. How can we apply that for us today? We are not uh, uh, immune to any of those things through which those people went. But we can learn that all of them, they gave their life to God. Those people who have victories in their life, they gave their life to God. Even Judah was asked gently by Jesus. You know what I mean? He had his chances to come back to Jesus to repent and to be saved. I believe this is the, the lesson which I will take up to here for myself, that today it's my time to fix my relationship with God, to give myself to God and allow him to make the changes in my life. Yes, being angry is not a sin. It's what happens when we are angry. Helen, when Moses made this angry speech, which was a very short one, he forgot something. What was it? Well, I believe the problem wasn't so much the anger itself, which was bad enough, but understandable, as we've mentioned. But when he said, must we bring water for you out of this rock, as if he or any human being could bring water out of a rock in his anger. He seemed to forget at that moment that it was only the power of God working among them that could do such a miracle. And he, of all people, should have known that. I would like to add a few more thoughts that I, I came across when I was studying this passage, and it spoke to me greatly. You know, when God said to Moses, as the people watch, speak to the rock. So there was one key. The people was people were watching Moses. He was God's representative, just as people watch us, and we are God's representatives. But in fairness, Moses actually did what he was told partially and sometimes we think that by partially doing what God asks us it's fine you know he took his staff as he was commanded he gathered or summoned the people to come and gather at the rock as commanded and yes he spoke to them as commanded but he was angry with the people Moses he took that credit and I think that was the greater problem than the disobedience. He took that credit for the miracle that was about to happen. You know, when he said, must we, and we've discussed that already, but the Lord told Moses to speak, but Moses struck. And and that was a problem. And by striking the rock, yes, Moses disobeyed God's direct command, but he also dishonored God in the presence of the people. And still God did the miracle. But, you know, there are consequences too, that he was forbidden. And we're going to discuss that in a moment. And we can understand where Moses came from. I mean, after all, the people nagged him, they slandered him, they rebelled against him, both him and God, and still they blamed Moses. And I think there's a limit as to what a man or a woman can, can handle, especially if they forget God. But Moses was the leader. Moses was a model for the entire nation. God had said, watch you know, about the people. They're watching. And because of that great responsibility of the people, he could not be let off lightly when he struck the, the rock. And we see that as well. And it, I think 
what for me struck out too was even through all that, God still called Moses Israel's greatest prophet and still called Moses a friend. And I think that is so important for us. When we partially obey God, it's not enough. God wants our all, our all at all times. And it's not a hard request or a hard command because he gave his all on the cross for us. Yes. Thank you, Helen. Now, Will, um, the fact that Moses got his uh, staff and gave the rock a smack twice, does that have any other spiritual overtones? Then several passages in scriptures like uh, 2 Samuel 22 verse 3 refer to the Lord as our refuge and rock. In fact, the Apostle Paul reminds us that the rock that was struck was Jesus Christ uh, because he says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, they drank from the spiritual rock and that rock was Christ. So Paul made that identification. You know, the prophet Isaiah emphasizes or prophesies that he was pierced or punished or struck for our transgressions, and with his stripes we are healed. So there's there's great significance, I believe, then, in Moses striking the rock and water coming out from, from it. Uh, that would happen again spiritually or metaphorically later on. Okay. So um, Will has partly covered something I was going to ask you, Brenton, but um, he was pointing out that the metaphorical rock is Christ. Yes. What's significant about that? Well, let me read Numbers 20, verse 8, where God's instructions to Moses and Aaron are these. Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, Gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. Um, We believe, spiritually speaking, that the rock was Christ. We believe that Christ was crucified once. The book of Hebrews, which we're going to study uh, very, very soon, talks about how Christ was the rock and how he was to be smitten once. He died on Calvary for our sins once. He didn't have to be offered again and again and again. The other spiritual lesson from this um, going forward is that he was the living water. Now, isn't it interesting that if you read John chapter 4, the story of Christ's interaction with the woman at the well in Samaria, you'll find that he offered her living water. And the living water that he was offering her was his words. So I believe that what happened here is by striking the rock twice, Moses broke the metaphor, the spiritual lesson that was to be given. Christ was to be smitten once. And from then on, it was the word of life that was living water for men and women and for all the rest of us. First John 1 9 says, rather interestingly enough, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think it's fair to say that we have to ask for forgiveness, um, Len, and we must talk to the Lord in prayer, calling on his name. I sometimes wonder about this text. We're very good at quoting the first part. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. We all agree that yes, 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 if we've sinned, we need to confess. But do we neglect the second part? 
The second part says, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the living water that Christ provides, his word, it spiritually refreshes us, but I believe it goes further than that. I believe it spiritually cleanses us and gives us a new heart and a new life. And I think that's the aspect where Moses really uh, broke this uh, lesson that Christ in, uh, intended to teach the children of Israel. We can learn a lesson from that today. Once again, a couple of weeks ago, we studied that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You find the metaphor here of the living water and the same application that um, we must take Christ at his word, follow it, and by following it in, and taking it in our own lives, it will change us and transform us. Thank you very much. Now, Joe, although Moses had led the Israelites for over 40 years, the punishment for his disobedience was to be barred from entering the promised land of Canaan. Now, just prior to Moses' death, what did the Lord do for him? Well, just after Moses had finished blessing the tribes, the tribes of Israel, it says in Deuteronomy 34, verses 1 to 4, Then Moses climbed, climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. And there the Lord showed him. The answer to your question, Len, is that the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim, Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, and the whole region from the Valley of Jericho, the City of Palms, as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over it. I guess God has shown him, and um, the, from the list of the places, apparently it runs counterclockwise from the north to the south. It just, it's a sweeping panorama, and Moses is a, allowed to scope the entire promised land. Now, we know that Moses was 120 years old when he died, but the Bible tells us that his eyes had were undimmed and his vigor undiminished. And so he was well able to see into the distance and appreciate. Um, and his heart was gladdened, I'm sure. Okay. Thank you. Brenton and Lydia. I just wanted to add what Joe said. I've actually stood on Mount Nebo. Now I can assure you, you can't see all of the promised land from Mount Nebo. So this must have been both a physical experience, but also a vision that I believe God gave him of the whole of the land because the day we were on Mount Nebo, we couldn't even see Jericho and that was only 20 kilometres away because it was so hazy. So I believe he stood on there and God gave him a panoramic vision mm. of the whole of the land that Israel was to, to occupy. All right. Now, Lydia, why do you think God uh, did this? Let Moses see the land that he had led the people to but wasn't allowed to go to himself? I think that God put himself in, in, in Moses' shoes because he longed for such a long time to enter into the land that was promised. And uh, because he was called on the mountain to die and it was said to him that he was not faithful to God as he was asked for. God chose this way 
to show him. And I think it was not just a panoramic view. I think it was more than that. I think God placed in his mind a, a, a better view of the land and the future just to fulfill his desire in his heart that him as a servant of God fulfilled his mission and had to be stopped there. Okay. All right. Yes, Nick. What I wanted to say about Moses, because yeah, we we can concentrate and focus on the thing, you know, when Moses was disobeying, you know, uh, what God says, because we didn't have time to really look into the context of uh, how people were uh, rebelling, you know, and they, there was a big dispute there. And Moses brought that to, to God, that dispute. And God instructed him what to do in regard to give them water and so on. But I want to say something a bit different. We may think that that was um, a punishment for Moses not to enter in Canaan. I would like to just think a little bit differently here. Actually, Moses to be put up on that top, uh, on the mountain there, and to see the land of Canaan. But what about that Moses had the privilege to go into the heavenly Canaan? You know, because not to see all the bad things which still happen in Canaan after the Israel went and all the sin they committed there in in the earthly Canaan. I think you see we can be sometimes disappointed that we haven't achieved what was in our heart or what we looked for. I believe if we trust in God, as Apostle Paul says, but for me to die, it's a gain. To live, it's Christ. I think this is an amazing lesson for us to learn, not to look at the negative aspect and thinking what the punishment God gave Moses that he was not allowed to enter in the earthly canon. Actually, God spoke highly about Moses and have that privilege of being resurrected and taken in heaven with God, to live with God there and to strengthen our Lord Jesus Christ, the rock which he strikes. I think that's an amazing lesson to learn here. It's uh, very good and very comforting for us to realize that although Moses had disobeyed, God hadn't written him off. God still cared for Moses. And I was thinking about this, and these are panel questions. Nobody in particular has to try to answer this, but if you have a response, um, I wonder why God uh, didn't say to Moses, oh, well, too bad, forget about it. Uh, You can lead the people into Canaan after all. Yes, Brenton? I think there was a problem, as I um, commented earlier, Len, by making the comment that he did in Numbers 20, uh, verse 7 or 8, where he said, Here now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water from this rock? If God had overlooked this as being a comparatively trivial matter, remember every time that the Israelites found themselves in difficulty, they blamed Moses. It's possible that if he had led them into the land of Canaan, because he'd lost his hold on God on this one occasion, it's He's now in a situation, I believe, where it's easier for the devil to come to him a second time and tempt him to take the credit for leading them into the land of Canaan. What I believe God was showing them by allowing Moses to die right on the borders of Canaan, it was clear to the rebellious ones 
And when they knew that Moses had died, they must have reflected, surely, at least some of them, that our rebelliousness has caused Moses to lose his temper with us and ultimately his life. It must have become clear to all of them that when they went into the land of Canaan under a new leader, Joshua, it was God who was leading them in rather than a man. And I believe that that's one reason why God did not allow him to lead them in. We do not know. Uh, it's mere speculation because we know that he didn't lead them in. But having failed once, we all know with temptation, it's easy to fail a second time. And I think that um, God saw that the only way that Israel would see clearly who it was that had led them from Egypt right through to the border of and into the promised land, they needed to learn the lesson that it was God, Christ himself, who had led them all along. Yes, thank you. Nick? Yeah, again, I want to mention, you know, that beautiful passage in First John chapter uh, 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, what he says the next? He is faithful. He is faithful. Who is faithful? God is faithful to sure. forgive us. You know what I find out here? That Moses didn't plead with God or say, please let me go in Canaan. Please, no. Why? Because Moses understood. I believe Moses practiced this. He, he, he really repented. And he asked God for that forgiveness. But the consequence of sin was still there. And we have many examples in the Bible, like the King David. He knew that the consequence of his sin will follow. And he was a strong man. And God was able to call him a man after his own heart, you know, God's heart. This is a lesson for us, for me, that the privilege we have is to confess our sins. That's a privilege we have. And God will take care of that. Even though we may miss out of some things in this life as a consequence of our sin, God will take care of us. God will bless us. God will give us more than we dreamed of. In this case, Moses, God gave him more. Not only just to let him go in the earthly canon, but God gave him more than that. All right. Well, that's a good point. Yes, Helen? Yeah. Thinking about this punishment brought me back to when Satan rebelled in heaven. Yes. God could have zapped Satan straight away. But what would have been the result? Or he could have just said, all right, Satan, you know, you can have your free will. What would have been the result of that? And I think this is similar to Moses. As I said before, a key word for me was that the people were watching. The people were watching. And, and what Moses did was his, his trespass was a mistake of any leader. And that is the temptation of to replace God. And I think there's a lesson there for us that we must be very, very careful. Satan wanted to replace God. Maybe Moses subconsciously when he made that comment, because I, I, I don't really believe that he, he felt that he was going to replace God because he, he loved God so much and he knew God. But in that moment of anger, he, he let it down. But, you know, when I, I think of it, as I mentioned before, Moses was a leader. He was a model for the entire nation. And last week we learned um, in our study that God does not go along with favoritism. Yes. You might remember that. It doesn't matter about man's status or, you know, whether they're rich or poor or uh, royalty or not. He regards all people the same. 
So if he had let Moses off without the consequences of what he did, I believe that the children of Israel would have taken that as a sign that, you know, if we do sin, oh, it's all right, God's just going to forgive us. It reduces the responsibility, if you like, of of sin. And sin is abhorrent to God. So I believe that he had, he really, I mean, God always had options, but I believe in in front of the people, Moses had to be chastened because he definitely went against God. But the good thing, as we saw, was even though Moses at the time, um, he would have realized what he did, but he didn't see that that vision of the heavenly Canaan. But that's how God works. You know, I'm sure that Moses repented of his sin. And in fact, sure, I was yeah. reading just the, the other day about a, um, a text in Deuteronomy 31 verse 2, it's, uh, verse 8. It says, do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord will personally go ahead of you. He will be with you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. And I believe that's encouragement for all of us when we sin and we come back to what Nick just quoted and my favorite text on John 1 9. Um, yeah, God will never abandon us. Okay. Well, there is a promised land that we're all heading toward. Yes. And the experiences of these people show that God is faithful. And if we are truly sorry for what we've done wrong, we don't have anything to fear. Joe, you want to comment here? Only very briefly. I think it wasn't so much that he disobeyed God, and he did, he did disobey God, but in, do, in so doing, he had defaced a, a beautiful picture of Christ's redemptive work through the rock which provided water in the wilderness. And we know that the New Testament makes this clear that he is the, the water-providing, life-giving rock. And Jesus being struck once provided life for all who would drink from him. And I think that has been mentioned. However, it is unnecessary and unrighteous. He wasn't struck again, was he? And so Moses, in his disobedience, had ruined a beautiful spiritual lesson that God was trying to teach his people. Um, And I think this picture was ruined. (laughs) And so this was, I've mentioned before, the ripple effect. Even our own sin, when we make mistakes, when we make wrong choices, it doesn't just end with us. It has a ripple effect, and so did with Moses. As for his punishment, in James it tells us that teachers uh, that teachers are judged more harshly than the average person. And so, you know, God could have zapped him there and then, but he didn't. And um, I think that, that just tells us a lot about God. Yes. Well, Brendan, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 to 8, it talks about Moses' death. And uh, I want to uh, perhaps get you to read that. Sure. But I want to ask you this question. Why do you think no one could find Moses' grave? Let me read it first, Len, then I'll comment on your question. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor but no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. I believe, Len, the answer to that question is to, well, first of all, who was present when Moses died? 
we believe that God himself buried Moses and we believe he buried him in an unmarked grave for one simple reason. I believe that the children of Israel would have possibly erected a shrine there and they would have come and worshipped at that. We have an example of that. Uh, Back in the wilderness, you might remember, Moses was um, instructed when the snakes were biting the Israelites and killing them to make a, a brass serpent and put it on a pole. It was known as Nehushtan. Now, back in the time of Josiah, they were actually worshipping this snake. So when Israel went off track, it is not hard to visualise that if they knew where Moses was buried and there was a memorial to him, that they would have come and worshipped there. God wanted them to worship him. But there is another aspect to it, Len, and that is we know from the book of Jude in Jude 9 that Christ himself, known as Michael in that passage, came down from heaven resurrected Moses and took him to heaven. How do we know that? Because on the Mount of Transfiguration in the New Testament, we find Moses and Elijah appearing with Christ and strengthening him for the task that lay ahead of him, which was going to the cross. I just wanted to add something here about why the grave of Moses is not to be found. And I believe this is a very important aspect of us understanding this. Because he was the only one who died and being resurrected and take, taken to, to heaven at that time. We talk about Enoch before, that God took him, not dying. God took him in heaven. This is the thing. There are many graves today and people believe that their souls are in heaven. If God takes Moses in heaven, a grave doesn't exist here on earth. Because there is not such a thing that the body sits here on in the grave and the soul is in heaven. If you are in heaven, you are in heaven, nothing here on, on, on the earth. But if you are in the grave, there's nothing in heaven. All right. So here's the question I want to ask you. I want a one word answer. Does the death of Moses indicate that good people go straight to heaven when they die? Joe? No. Ken? No. Helen? No. Brenton? No. Nick? I said already, no. Lydia? Definitely no. And my answer is also a no. Well, now, um, it's been alluded to, but Ken, in Jude verse 9, there's a question, or well, it gives us an answer to the question, who claimed Moses' body? Well, as we read in Jude 9... Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, first not being against him a rallying accusation, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Lo, we're given only a glimpse. What an incredible scene is depicted here. Michael, Christ himself, disputed with the devil about the body of Moses, disputed over it how. There's no doubt that Moses was a sinner. Indeed, his last known sin, the taking on himself, Glory, which was God's, was the same kind of sin. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. This got Lucifer himself thrown out of heaven in the first place. The dispute over Moses' body must have been because Christ was now claiming for Moses the promised resurrection. But how could Christ do that for a sinner? Moses somehow who had violated his law. The answer, of course, could only be the cross. Just as all the animal sacrifices pointed ahead to Christ's death, so obviously the Lord now 
looking ahead to the cross, claimed the body of Moses to be resurrected. In consequence of sin, Moses had come under the power of Satan. In his own merits, he was death's lawful captive, but he was raised to immortal life, holding his title in the name of the Redeemer. Moses came forth from the tomb glorified and ascended with his deliverer to the city of God. Yes, all right. Thank you, Ken. The New Testament cites an incident where Moses appears again. After all, we are talking about the resurrection of Moses. Helen, would you briefly like to tell us what was the situation and why would Moses have been there? Okay, in Matthew 17, 1 to 5, it talks about six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, led them up a high mountain to be alone. And as the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. And suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. I'm going to stop at that point because I note something very, very important, and that was that they were transformed for a start. I believe this was a vision, and he shone like the sun. And verse 3, suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. That stood out to me when I thought, okay, here is a foretaste of heaven, and here they are talking. There is interaction in heaven. You know, people have still have um, their individuals. They have minds, hearts, opinions, whatever. And that was an encouragement for me for a start. But what does it represent? Well, first and foremost, I believe that it shows a brief glimpse of the true glory of the king. I believe that it was a special revelation of Jesus' divinity to three of the disciples. And it was God's divine affirmation of everything Jesus had done and was going to do but apart from that why Moses and why large Moses both these men they were great two of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament and I believe that Moses for a start I believe Moses and Elijah encouraged Jesus but I believe that Moses represents the saints who have died or will die and who will be resurrected at Jesus' return. And Elijah, on on the other hand, he was taken to heaven in a chariot. He did not die. So for me, that's the people that will be still alive when Jesus returns. It's an example of those. And, And also, if we look a little bit further, we'll notice that Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets who foretold of the coming of the Messiah. All right. Thank you, Helen. Now, Joe, Moses was resurrected. Does it tell us in 1 Corinthians 50 verses, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 50 to 58 about when people, the saved people, receive immortality? Okay. Now, this comes from 1 Corinthians 15 verses 50 to 54. Now, this doesn't really need any comment because the word of God speaks for itself. And it says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Yes. 
And this is a wonderful promise that when Jesus comes again, that's when immortality begins for those who are faithful to God. What Joe is saying, that not blood and flesh will inherit eternal life. Some people may think that uh, there will be all, only spirits there because not blood and flesh. But when we talk about the blood and flesh, we talk about the sin. Because, you know, the Bible speaks that not through the blood of animals, you know, we are uh, cleansed, but through the blood of Jesus. Blood and flesh represent sin, which means in heaven will not be such as sin. And then we cannot go in heaven, doesn't matter what we do on this earth. We need to uh, put ourselves right with God to be able to be in heaven. Because some people may misunderstand that when that passage says not flesh and blood, they may think that will be only just spirits in heaven. We don't go straight to heaven when we die, although many people believe that lie. The saints are given eternal life at and not before Jesus returns to take his people home. And that's been the hope of Christians for generations. This is my hope, the hope and reassurance of each of us on the Bible study panel. Dear friends, it's our prayer that this hope becomes your hope and that you live your lives in commitment to the Lord. He was Moses' hope, the only worthwhile hope. Now we're at the brink of a new year and we believe Jesus is coming soon. Don't you give up. He will keep his promise. He will come. And may we and you all be ready for that glorious event. Brendan, would you pray for us and our listeners? Certainly. Father in heaven, uh, I want to thank you for the studies that we have done over the last few weeks in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses was raised by Christ himself and taken to heaven. We have the promise that Joe shared with us from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 to 58, of who will inherit the kingdom of God. We look forward to that day. Lord, whether we chosen to fall asleep before that time and resurrected to see you appear in the clouds of heaven or whether we are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, we are content. We thank you for what we have studied. Our hearts are joyful because we do have what we call the blessed hope. May this blessed hope sustain us as panel and may it sustain our listeners as we go into 2022. My prayer is this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So from all of us, we wish you a happy Christmas, happy Christmas and a blessed, blessed New, New Year. Year. Thank you, everyone, for your participation today. That was a great study about the book of Deuteronomy. And um, looking forward to start a, a brand new a Bible study about the book of Hebrew. I believe that will be a blessing for, for us all. Please uh, join us uh, again next week. And until then, walk safely in the footsteps of Jesus.